Well, good morning. This morning, we're going to continue our study of the book of Acts. We're in Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. And I've titled this Paul in Athens, which is a very uh, benign title, but this is a powerful text. So I want us to really get our bearings here and uh, enjoy how Paul has dealt, uh, dealt with these pagan people who were biblically illiterate in the first century. And that's a powerful lesson for us because largely we live in a biblically illiterate world today, and we need to know how to bring the truth, the good news of Jesus as Lord and Christ to all people in all settings. And Paul gives us a great example of that. So in Berea, Paul encountered people governed by scripture. Berea was the place he's coming from when he went, went and then he went to Athens. And the people in Berea were more noble than the people in Thessalonica. Both places had a synagogue, but only the people of Berea really were clearly regulated by Scripture because they took what Paul taught and they evaluated it against Scripture. And Paul commends them and calls them more noble. That's clearly a model for us. We need to learn to evaluate all truth claims against Scripture. The only thing that we want to hold on to is that which is aligned with Scripture. This is called sound thinking. Now, in, Acts, in Athens, he will find uh, people there that uh, have some biblical literacy. There was a synagogue in Athens, but his primary role in Athens appears to be dealing with the pagans, dealing, dealing with pagan elite who think they're very, very intelligent. The problem is they don't know that they're deranged thinkers. This is now the second incident in the book of Acts where Paul is dealing with people who are biblically illiterate. The first time was Lystra in Acts 14, verses 8 through 19. And in both cases, both here uh, in Athens and in Lystra, he will use the approach of natural theology. That is general revelation to present the good news of Jesus is Lord in Christ. Now, when Paul visited Athens, it may seem incidental, but it was not. It was not. It was very strategic. And to introduce this section of the book of Acts, you may want to consider some words from John Stott, who, who I think wrote very, very poignantly on the setting here. So let me read some of what he said. Everyone knew about Athens. Athens was the foremost Greek city-state from the 5th century BC. Even after its incorporation into the Roman Empire, it retained a proud intellectual independence and also became a free city. It boasts of its rich philosophical tradition inherited from Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and of its literature and art, and of its notable achievements in the cause of human liberty. Even if in Paul's day it lived as its great past, and it was comparatively small town by modern criteria, it still had an in, in the unrivaled reputation as the empire's intellectual metropolis. Paul encountered the common Greek philosophers of the day in his encounter in Athens, and these were the Stoics and the Epicureans. And of these people, Stott wrote this, the Epicureans are philosophers of the garden, as they were called, founded by Epicurus, who died in 270 BC, considered the gods to be so remote as to take no interest in and have no influence on human affairs. Sounds very similar to deism today. The world was due to chance, a random course of atoms, and there were no, no survival of, of death and no judgment. It sounds like the atheist worldview of today. So human beings uh, could pursue pleasure 
sound like hedonism of today, especially the sincere enjoyment of life detached from pain, passion, and fear. The Stoics, however, are philosophers of the porch, founded by Zeno, who died in 265 BC, acknowledged the supreme God, but in a pantheistic way, confusing him with the world so. Note that the, the reference to pantheism, because that's going to come up in Paul's presentation here. The world was determined by fate, and human beings must pursue their duty, resigning themselves to live in harmony with nature and reason, however painful this might be, and develop their own self-sufficiency. You hear existentialism, you hear, you hear Buddhism, Hinduism, and all this. So you see the seeds of the worldviews that are prominent today were right here in the first century. To over, oversimplify it was characteristic of Epicureans to emphasize chance, escape, and enjoyment of pleasure, and the Stoics emphasized fatalism, submission, and endurance of pain. So two very, very different worldviews, but both had the same, same objective, and that was to live the good life as they defined it. They defined it differently, but they were both trying to do the same thing. So in Athens, Paul demonstrates how to defend the faith against the onslaught of false worldviews prominent in the Greco-Roman Empire. His audience epitomized deranged thinking. Adam and Eve were the first deranged thinkers. They ignored the revelation of God, presuming they knew better. The judgment of God was to turn them over to deranged thinking. Consequently, their heirs, all of us, all humans, at all times and every places, are heirs of Adam and Eve, are by nature, from birth, deranged thinkers. We all are born deranged thinkers. Only the transformation work of the Holy Spirit can change this reality. The intellectuals in Athens were the elite of the world in the first century, whose deranged thinking led them to deranged lifestyles. Little did they know how deranged they were. So let's consider how Paul sought to reveal the truth of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to the deranged thinkers in Athens and his solution for how to be transformed from deranged thinking to sound thinking based on the truth that Jesus is Lord and Christ. So let's look at Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 23, the first section. Um, I'm just going to read the text and make a few comments as we go along. While Paul was waiting for them, he was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw this, that the city was full of idols. So you can just imagine Paul was there waiting for his traveling companions to show up, and he's looking around. He's wandering around, probably talking to people, looking at things, and he becomes deeply distressed. So he decides to engage. So he reasoned, this word reason here means to help, to help people think things through, reasoned in the synagogue. That's the first place he always went was the synagogue, the place where the Bible was exalted and honored and revered and respected and re was used to regulate life. So it was largely Jews and there would have been some converts to Judaism as well. So in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God as well as in the marketplace, he went to the Agora. That was the marketplace in that day. And he apparently had conversations there. And it says with every day with those who, with those who happen to be there. Now don't hear that as random chance. You know, happen, when you talk about happening, you're talking about from a human perspective. It looks like it just happened. It looked like it was just random. No, it's nothing ever ran as ever random. But you're going to see in this text 
there's clear references to God sovereignly in control in ordaining things and setting things in place. At the same thing, time, there is a human perspective that appears from time to time where it looks like from a human eye, things just happen. It's random, but it's never random. God is always in control. Just as the Proverbs say in Proverbs 16:33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There's no random in God's universe from God's perspective, but it looks random for our perspective at times. So some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show off trying to say? Now, these were not very um, sincere skeptics. These were insincere skeptics. They weren't really looking for answers, but they engaged him. Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities, that is, foreign divine powers, because he was telling them the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the word resurrection comes from a Greek word, which means to stand up. It's 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 just a... Uh, it's a compound word that's, that the compounding is, is the word stand with the word again. So it's stand up again. And so that's important because uh, it, he's going to play off that several times in this text here. They took him and brought him to the Oropagus and said, may we know. This is so interesting. This word may is dunamai. Dunamai is the word for power in the Greek language. So they're asking for the power to learn, and the word learn is gnosko, which is the general word for knowing. May we know, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting. They realize there's something new about this teaching. We've never heard this before, and we need the power to understand this because of what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now the Athenians and the foreigners resided there, spending their time in nothing else but telling and hearing something new. Remember that the Roman citizens and these Athenians who have been Roman citizens, they did not work. The work was done by slaves. So they have free time and they spend their time sipping coffee or sipping other beverages and, and talking philosophy. That's all they do every day. So they want to know what it is that Paul is saying and what it means. So in verse 22, he's now standing up in the middle, and now he's been taken from the marketplace, the Agora, over to the Oropagus. The Oropagus is where civil uh, matters were settled, the court. The Agora was the marketplace. The Oropagus is the court. And of course, that the, the pinnacle of things is the Acropolis. That's where spiritual activities are. That's where the Temple of Diana was, or the, and the Temple of, uh, you know, of the, I believe it was Diana. Let's see. Uh, Athena, I'm sorry. It's the goddess of Athena associated with wisdom, handcraft, and warfare. Diana is, is in Ephesus. This is in, Antio um, in Athens. So Paul stood up in the middle of the Oropagus, which was a civil court, and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious. Well, that word religious means superstitious in every respect. For I was, I was passing through, means I was wandering through, looking at things, observing the objects of your worship. I even found, and he found heuristically. This is the word that we get heuristic knowledge from. Heurism basically is trial and error. We, we try different things and we learn by trial and error. So he just was walking around and he's getting a sense of what these people are all about and how they think. And uh, so he's preparing himself to how he's going to talk to them. 
So I found an altar even inscribed to an unknown God. So he's found something he could play off of. It's important to note, he's he wants to find something he can latch to, not that he's agreeing with it, but he's saying, okay, I, that thing there, you say, you don't know about this God. I'm going to tell you about this God you don't know. So that's what he's saying. You worship him in ignorance, and that word ignorance, we get agnostic from that. <clears throat> this I will proclaim to you. Now, the word for proclaim here is different from a word he's going to use later on when he talks about a command. This is a, a this, it comes from the word kata angelo. Angelo's message and kata's beside. It's, it's, it's kind of a message, excuse me, it's a message against. Kata's against and angelo's a message. So I'm proclaiming to you a message that's against what you normally think. So that's the introduction. So now here comes Paul's apologetic. Verse 24, the God who made the world, the cosmos, and everything in it. Now you see I've got this word pos in here. I've got making note of it. The word pos will show up many times in this text, and it will be translated different ways. It's not going to be always translated the same way, which is interesting, meaning pos is a very general word for all. It, it's basically all-inclusive. The world and everything in the world, everything, there's no exceptions, is he is the Lord of heaven and earth. So now he's telling us that the world, the cosmos, includes heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. So here immediately we have a creator who is transcendent. So we have a creator and a transcendent creator. Those are things that are foreign to them. They don't understand that. So Paul is declaring this to them. He's using general revelation. He's going to play off general revelation, the revelation of God in creation, to make his points. He's asserting that the universe that you're in, the heavens and earth, all of it has come from a creator, one creator. So they're listening. Verse 25, neither is he served by human hands as though he needs anything. This is the trait of a seity. And we'll talk more about this later, but very briefly, what a seity is, is that God does not need anything from anyone. He's not dependent on anyone. He is a uncaused cause. He is a self-sufficient person. He is a self-existent person who is not dependent on anything or any being or anything else. He is completely self-sufficient in himself. Since he himself gives everyone, now we have pos again, life, zoe, biological life, and breath, and all things. So now this is appealing to ontology, the being that you're in. And of course, the Greeks, I'm using words that they would be very familiar with because they were very good uh, philosophical thinkers. We're not so good at that. So if I use ontology, you might say, well, what is that? That is the study of being, the, the essential nature of being. Ontological, there's an ontological argument that says the existence of God to some degree is revealed in the existence of man because man has, has existence. It, if man is real, there has to be a creator of man who is real as well. So ontological argument argues from, the, from being, from the reality of being. For one, from one man, he's made every, again, pos, again, nationality, which is really ethnos, is really ethnic groups. The word nationality is a little misleading to us today because we think of geography, but ethnicity wasn't tied to geography. 
it was tied to different people groups, more to languages than anything else. Secondarily to geography and thirdly to maybe skin color or things like that, facial features. So he's talking about how every ethnicity God has made to live over the whole earth. So we have God who is the creator of all mankind, the creator of the earth, the creator of all the systems of the earth, because cosmos refers to systems. He's discerned their appointed time. So now we have the, the sovereignty of God very clearly explaining everyone exists at the sovereign pleasure of God when he chooses and how he chooses them to exist. So that's very important for us. We're, we don't, we're not the process of random chance. You know, our existence is ordained by God, who our family is, where we're born, when we're born, you know, what our our skill and ability, our aptitudes, our opportunities, our relationships, everything about our life, God has appointed. And he's given us a time, a time of birth and a time of death, a Kairos time and boundaries by which we live in. We live in a sovereign universe where God makes the choices. That offends us because we want to make the choices. We want the freedom to do what we want to do. Well, what he's telling everyone here, that's not reality. God gets to make the choices because he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Verse 27, he did this so that they may grope, may seek after him. So now we're moving into teleology. You know, we've been into cosmology, ontology. Now we're moving into some teleology, the purpose of all this. God has done this so that man might seek him. You see, God is not hidden. God is transcendent, but he is imminent as well. There are many in professing Christians today that believe God is hidden. So we have to go reveal him to people. That's what's what drives world missions is the presumption that God is hidden. God is not hidden. God is imminent. He's available. He is, he's, uh, he's findable. He's not hidden in such a way that we can't find him, but we have to seek him. Humility, submission, and teachability are the way that we begin to seek him. As long as we in our rebellion don't seek him, we won't find him. We find him as we humble ourselves. So he says he did not he did this so that they may seek him and perhaps they may reach out and find him. This is again, uh, this is the same word, heurisco, which means we're going to, it's a trial and error kind of thing. As we look at things, as we understand things, as we grow in things, we discover more and more of who he is, even in creation. And it's also true in scripture. We will discover more and more of him as we study scripture more explicitly. But even in creation, we can find out a lot about God. And he is, we, we can learn he is not far from each one of us. He is close by. He is not hidden. For him, in him. Now we're back to ontology. We're going to go back to we live and move and have our being. Now this to us may seem like, well, these are just kind of trivial things. No, they're very significant to Greek thinkers. These were big philosophical ideas and thoughts that came from Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. What is the source of our being? And what is the source of movement? What is the source of life? You know, What is this? And there was arguments about whether whether we're human beings or human doings, meaning hum, human doings or human or people that move. So that was debated. It was Plato that synthesized that. And 
began to make that acceptable. So all of these are theological issues for us and philosophical issues for them. We understand God is the source of our being. He is the he is the one that empowers us to move and he gives the breath in our bodies. So in him, all of these things come as even some of your own poets have said. So now he's going to turn and quote from some, some poets that are not even Christians. These are pagan poets. They say things like, we also are his offspring. That is his generation. This genos here is the word we get generation from. So the poets are saying these things. Since we are God's offsprings then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, now he's going to change. In light of this, of you should not, these idols that you have here, these do not represent God. That is not who he is. God is not an inanimate object. He's an animate being. And the fact that you are an animate being testifies that he must be an animate being as well. That's their argument here. So there, the next verse, verse 30, almost assumes that everyone understands uh, what he said so far. And it raised the question about, about the fallenness of the world in some way. They may not use that word fallenness, but they know the world has gone wrong. Something is wrong. Something isn't right. Plato taught, taught them that the, that the dualistic uh, philosophical imagery of form and matter. Form is the perfect. It's what, what everything should be. Matter is what is and what needs to be changed into form. Matter is defective and needs to become perfect like form. So they instinctively know there's things wrong. So it leads to the question, is there going to be judgment? So without even asking the question, he just immediately lets them know, you know, I, I know you're asking that question, so you need to know he's overlooked. He's forbearing judgment because you've had times of ignorance. You haven't really understood very well. We now have new revelation. He doesn't say this, but the implication is the revelation is Jesus is Lord in Christ. We now know that. We didn't know that before. Now we know it. So God now commands. So this is now different. We had the word kata on galo, galo before, which is saying, I'm giving you a message that's contrary to what you're used to hearing. Paral on galo is a message beside where I'm saying, this is a command. I'm coming beside you with a command. The command is all people, pass again, and anthropos, anthropos used generically everywhere to repent, change your thinking. You have bad, deranged thinking. You need to get good thinking. And the reason is he set a day in which he's going to judge the world. Now, they deep down knew that was coming. Even though the Stoics and Epicureans wanted to deny that, they still, it's undeniable. Paul says this in Romans 1 at the end of the chapter that even those who claim that there is no God deep down know that they will be held accountable to that to a God that they claim is, doesn't exist. So atheism is inherently conflicted because the witness of Christ is in them and they have to suppress it. And so they, are, they live a hypocritical life. They live in denial. So we need to know this judgment's coming there's a standard called righteousness, and there is a person appointed 
God's sovereign control and that person appointed is the one that was raised from the dead. It's so interesting in verse 31, he uses the phrase, he's provided proof to this for everyone. That word proof is the word pistis. It's the word faith. So it's like, wow, what a strange way to translate faith, to translate it as proof. But what helps us here is to remember something that, that the book of Hebrews tells us. It tells us that, uh, <clears throat> let me find it here in my notes. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So in that sense, it's a proof. Now, when you say, wait a minute, it's not proof like a rational proof. Well, let's think about this. A rational proof assumes the mental faculties in your brain can lead you to truth. It assumes your sense perception provides data for your brain to process. It assumes all of this. There's no way to prove it. So rational rationality, reasoned arguments always begin with faith in sense perception and the mental faculties. So any way you go, you start with faith. Either your faith is in the revelation of God or your faith is in your mental faculties and your brain's ability and senses to do things. So it's it's interesting that they've chosen to, to put the word proof here as the translation of pistis. But faith is what's been given to us as the way that we embrace Christ. We embrace him by faith. Certainly there's no reasoned argument that will be able to stand against Christ because Christ is the source of all reason. You can't use reason effectively against Christ, but you have to understand that that reason does not is does not exist independent of faith. Reason exists based on faith. So it's a very interesting point he makes here. It's kind of a subtle point. All right, let's just see how the people respond to this message. When they heard that about the resurrection of the dead, some of them ridiculed him. But others said, we will like to hear you again about this day. So Paul left their presence. So what you have here is you have the skeptics and you have some who are sincere and some who are unsincere. The insincere skeptics, they ridicule. The sincere skeptics want to know more. And that's the way it is. And you need to know when delivering an apologetic, uh, when you finished, because when you finished, you need to leave. So Paul left their presence. That's a, that's a very subtle thing. One verse, simple phrase, but it reflects great wisdom on his as to when to stop the discussion and when to depart. And whatever the Holy Spirit's going to do with these people, he doesn't need Paul. He's not choosing to use Paul right now. He will work with them without Paul. Later, he might have brought Paul in or someone else in to do more work with some of them. But it's so interesting to see that Paul recognized that there wasn't anything else for him to do. We need to be able to recognize that too. Whether it's raising children or raising spiritual children or being an apologist to a skeptic, it doesn't matter. We need to know when the conversation's over and when to pull back. It's a good lesson there for all of us. All right, just a quick theological point and an application. Uh, I want to point out the divine attribute of a seity. That's not an attribute you hear a lot about, or at least I haven't. Uh, I found there are some theologians that will talk about it and others 
I, I went through some other theological works in preparation for this and looking to see if they said anything. There, there are a number of systematic theologies that say nothing about this. But there are those that recognize it and are very prominent in putting it out there. I think it's important we understand a deity. The attributes of God are generally categorized into incommunicable and communicable attributes. The former are traits unique to God. That is, incommunicable attributes are not traits that we have. His eternality, his omnipresence, his omniscience, you know, uh, he's all-powerful. He's all, He is uh, all-knowing. He is uh, everywhere. He, 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 there's no end or beginning with him. He's infinity, eternal. So... He's got attributes that we can't begin to touch. But there are other attributes that he has that he shares with us. We call those communicable attributes. We don't have them to the perfection that he does, but we have some of these traits. The communicable attributes are the basis for mankind being made in the image of God. So one of the incommunicable attributes of God is the trait of a seity. A seity refers to the self-existence and non-dependent nature of God. None of us are self-existent. And none of us are independent. We all are dependent beings. We exist at the sovereign pleasure of God. You know, we are contingent beings. He is a he's a necessary being. Necessary means he cannot help but exist. And contingent beings require necessary beings or other contingent beings for their existence. So, you know, he is non-dependent. He is does not need anyone or anything. So Sproul, in his book on everyone's a theologian, I think has got a, a nice little couple of paragraphs on this. So I'm going to read these real quickly to you. The ultimate difference between God and other beings lies in the fact that creatures are derived, conditional, and dependent. However, God is not dependent. He has the power of being in and of himself. He does not derive it from anything else. Scripture tells us that God, that in God we live and move and have our being. That's Acts 17:28. But nowhere are we told that God has has his being in man. He was he has never needed to us to survive or to be. He doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our, our intelligence. He doesn't need our wealth. Nothing. And yet we cannot survive for an instant of power of being without upholding, without his being upholding our being. We're totally dependent upon him. God created that which uh, God created us, which means that from our first breath, we are dependent on him for our very existence. What God creates, he also sustains and preserves. So we are as dependent upon God for our continuing existence as we were for our original existence. This is the supreme difference between God and us. God has no such dependence on anything outside of himself. God is the only being. That is the quality of acidity, acidity, which is spelled A-S-E-I-T-Y. He is the uncaused cause of all. In the beginning, he was the only being that existed. In no other way, in no way is he dependent upon creation or his crea uh, created order in any way. He is the transcendent creator of all and source of all life. The created order exists as the sovereign voluntary choice of the creator who defines all truth and all aspects of creation. The creator did not have to create anything. He did not have to create us. He chose to. His choice, his sovereign pleasure. 
The requisite truth for humans to live in God's universe and to serve his sovereign purpose is promulgated in timeless universal principles. God makes these timeless universal principles that govern his universe, and he works through them sovereignly, and he expects us to comply with them. And if we don't, you know from being through the business leadership school, God has a feedback system. And the feedback system is sometimes pretty nasty consequences for failing to obey God's timeless universal principles. Now, you could abbreviate timeless universal principles within, with the uh, little abbreviation TUP, an acronym TUP, as derived conditional and dependent beings have no right to try to challenge TUP. That's what we're doing today. We're challenging TUP. Attempts to do this are examples of deranged thinking. In a fallen world, humans are audacious enough to try to challenge the sovereign creator by presuming the right to redefine TUP. That is the big problem in our culture of the world today is the presumption that we can redefine TUP. Any such challenge will fail. Ultimately, these attempts to redefine reality will not prevail. In the end, the lordship of Jesus will be unequivocally settled. All rebellion against God will be eliminated and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of all. Tup will prevail. Jesus will prevail. So let me give you a word of application, of, and I've titled this Timeless Universal Principles. A few years ago, I visited a school that adopted my book, Beyond Babel, as part of their curriculum. When I engaged the students, they spoke of Tup. At first, I didn't know what they were referring to, so I inquired. They pointed me to the subtitle of my book, which reads in part, Timeless Universal Principles, which they call by the acronym, an acronym TUP. One of the seminal predicates of human life is the existence of TUP. All life is predicated on TUP by the Creator. This is the heart of Paul's apologetic to the Athenians, the intellectual lead of his day. TUP is, trans, is truth that transcends space and time. It is defined by the Creator, who is the uncaused cause of all reality. Tup cannot be defined by the creatures of creation. Only the creator has a sovereign right and power to define Tup in accordance with his will and his nature. The existence of Tup is a predicate of all truth. All science presumes the existence of Tup. Without Tup, there will be no way to know truth because there will be no laws of the universe. Therefore, anyone seeking to understand the tangible world has to believe in these timeless universal principles. There's no choice. And indeed, this predicate is demonstrated to be true by the vast array of technical advances that facilitate the quality of life enjoyed today as compared to just a few hundred years ago. The existence of timeless universal principles is therefore undeniable. Now, notwithstanding the overwhelming empirical data of the existence of TUP, Mankind continues to question the existence of the creator and his tup. One might ask why. Theologically, the explanation is simple. Total depravity. The total inability of mankind to do enough good works to please God. Mankind is in a state of rebellion against God and has been in that state since Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve were the first deranged thinkers. They presumed they knew how to manage creation better than the creator. This deranged thinking led them to disobey God, rebel against God, to sin against God, to disobey his one commandment. 
God's response was to turn them over to deranged thinking because it took deranged thinking to disobey God. He said, okay, you want to think deranged? I'll let you think deranged. You and your heirs from now, you'll be deranged thinkers until I restore sanity and sound thinking to my creation. Consequently, all their heirs, namely all of us, are by nature, from birth, deranged thinkers. This means that every human is born with a bias to deranged thinking. Well, with this bias, mankind is impotent to redefine top, though mankind is attempting to do so. Now, to be clear, deranged thinking does not mean humans are incapable of any sound thinking. By virtue of common grace, humans can think soundly enough to survive in God's universe, but they can't think soundly enough or to act well enough to be, be salvific. Fallen humans are impotent to be salvific. They're, not, they're impotent to think soundly enough to be able to live according to the will and ways of God. So we have some ability to think soundly, but it's very, very limited. So some examples of the deranged thinking that are today, they're very prominent, very common in our culture today. First of all, atheism. Atheism has no answers for anything. It has no way to develop a value system that will support society. It cannot explain progress. It cannot explain why, why we have a bias to profit over loss or life over death. There's no explanation in atheism. And even Kant, who was an atheist philosopher, acknowledged that you had to have a God hypothesis to have a value system. Without a God hypothesis, you have no value system. Without values, you have no civilization. So that's deranged thinking, atheism. <clears throat> Ontology, it's it's deranged thinking to think truth is relative, meaning that there's no there's no tup. Truth is not relative. It isn't relative to human beings. Each human being doesn't have his or her truth. There's timeless universal principles that apply to all, period. Epistemology, the Bible is not the word of God, which is the proclaim or the of the secular education, it's the, the presumption of secular education, which leads to things like no school prayer, no reading of the Bible, you know, on, on, a, on a campus, school campus. Well, Jesus is the source of all truth. If education is about discovering truth, how can you possibly exclude the source of all truth from your education system? Deranged thinking. Hermeneutics, which are, you know, understanding and translating uh, the revelation that we have Largely what we do is we, we translate things by what we call best practices. This is, you know, things that, that work for us that we like. We get the consequence that we like. We will use the practices needed to get that consequence. That is not the reason to do something. You don't do something biblically because it works. You do it because it's right. So we got deranged thinking driving largely the organizations of the world that are pursuing the secular best practices. They brag on this. It's, a, it's just, it's just it's such a, a farce, and yet they cannot see it. We have anthropology, the claim that man is basically good, the blank slate theory, and that consequently man can do whatever man wants to do. Again, this is contrary to the word of God. This is deranged thinking. We have human beings in the world who are all biased to sin. No one has a blank slate. Deranged thinking. Teleology, no meta-narrative, no final judgment, self-defined purpose. These are more signs of deranged thinking. This is existentialism. This is atheism. This is not sound thinking in any way. There is purpose in God's universe. There will be judgment, and God defines all purpose. And there is a meta-narrative that God is in control over. Ethics, 
Well, I mean, just the end of the list here is endless. There's so many bad choices that we've made over the last 150, 200 years ethically. It just defies, just defies imagination. We've totally destroyed marriage. We've totally destroyed sexual, you know, proper sexual morals, you know, gay marriage, abortion, Keynesian economics, defund the police, on and on. These are examples of deranged thinking and ethics playing out today. All of these are examples of deranged thinking that's widely accepted in the culture today, and the culture seems to be oblivious to how deceived they are. The solution to deranged thinking is what the Apostle Paul told the elite in Athens, the intellectual capital in the first century. He told them to repent for their wrong thinking about God and start thinking correctly about the Creator, who is the source, sustainer, and redeemer of all humanity. Repentance will enable mankind to learn to live well in God's universe by living congruently with Tup. The ultimate expression of Tup was and is Jesus is both Lord and Christ, and one who embraces Jesus as the proper foundation for thinking and living will live wisely in God's universe. May the truth about Tup challenge every one of us to repent from deranged thinking and embrace Jesus as the foundation for all sound thinking and sound living.